Section 15 of The Book of the Ocean. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Annabel Smith. The Book of the Ocean by Ernest Ingersoll. Dangers of the Deep, Part 2. A somewhat similar history belongs to some of the lighthouses on this side of the Atlantic. The first one regularly set up in the United States was that on the north side of the entrance to Boston Harbor, erected in 1716, but many others go back to colonial days. That on Sandy Hook, for instance. Perhaps the most interesting history is attached to the light on Minot's Ledge in Boston Harbor. This is a dangerous reef, concealed at high water and so exposed that the problem of lighting it was much the same as that presented at Eddystone, Bell Rock, De Hartock, and other well-known islets on the British coast. The first lighthouse on Minot's Ledge was built in 1848 and was an octagonal tower resting on the tops of eight wrought-iron piles 60 feet high, eight inches in diameter, and sunk five feet into the rock. These piles were braced together in many ways, and as they offered less surface area to the waves than a solid structure, the lighthouse was considered by all the authorities upon the subject to be exceptionally strong. Its great tests came in April, 1851. On the 14th of that month, two keepers being in the lighthouse, an easterly gale set in, steadily increasing in force. On Wednesday, the 16th, the gale had become a hurricane, and when at times the tower could be seen through the mists and sea drift, it seemed to bend to the shock of the waves. At four o'clock that afternoon, an ominous proof of the fury of the waves on Minot's ledge reached the shore. A platform which had been built between the piles only seven feet below the floor of the keeper's room. The raging seas, then, were leaping fifty feet in the air. Would they reach ten feet higher? For if so, the house and the keepers were doomed. Nevertheless, when darkness set in, the light shone out as brilliantly as ever. But the gale seemed, if possible, then to increase. What agony those two men must have suffered! How that dreadful abode must have swayed in the irresistible hurricane, and trembled at each crushing sea. The poor unfortunates must have known that if those seas, leaping always higher and higher, ever reached their house, it would be flung down into the ocean, and they would be buried with it beneath the waves. To those hopeless, terrified watchers, the entombing sea came at last. At one o'clock in the morning, the lighthouse bell was heard by those on shore to give a mournful clang, and the light was extinguished. It was the funeral knell of two patient heroes. Next day, there remained on the rock only eight jagged iron stumps. Thus everywhere, and in all latitudes, the beacons and wooden towers and huge pyramids of long ago have given place to slender spires of solid masonry holding powerful signals perhaps hundreds of feet above the waves, and visible as far as the curve of the earth's surface will permit. Yet in place of the sturdy bonfire of oak, or the huge iron cage full of coals, there is only a single lamp, whose rays are gathered by deep reflectors into a compact bundle of unwasted rays, and doubled and redoubled by rows of magnifying lenses, until they can dart to the furthest horizon in a strong beam of steady light. No longer does the mariner trust his wife to kindle the tar barrel to guide him home. He knows that nowhere is his government more watchful of its subjects than in its lighthouse service.
and that he may trust to having that bright signal to welcome him in the darkness, as well as he can trust his own eyes to see it. The United States alone expends over $2,500,000 annually in looking after her lighthouses, lightships, and buoys. Indeed, these beacons have become so thickly planted that it has been found necessary to distinguish between them in order to avoid mistaking one for another. At first, this was done by doubling, as in the case of New York's Highland Lights, or the twin lights of Thatcher's Island off Cape Ann, or even trebling them, as in Nauset on Cape Cod. But now the display is made to vary. Thus, some of them are simply fixed white lights, some are white and revolve, the whole lantern on the summit of the tower being turned on wheels by machinery, and the flame disappears for a longer or shorter time, while others are white flashlights, glancing only for an instant and then lost for a few seconds, or giving a long wink and then a short one with a space of darkness between. Some lighthouses show a steady red light, others alternate red and white. By these colors and varying periods of appearance and disappearance, noted on charts and published by the government in a general seaman's guide called the Coast Pilot. Navigators know which light they are looking at when several are in sight. For daylight recognition, the towers may be painted half black and half white, or in stripes or bands or spirals, like the big barber's pole in front of St. Augustine, Florida. It is impossible here to describe, in detail, the beautiful machinery by which the rays from the large but simple argand kerosene lamps are condensed into a single beam and projected through the Fresnel system of condensers and lenses, and by which the revolution and flashing are effected. Petroleum has superseded all other oils for general use, but electricity is now being extensively employed in the illumination of coast lights, especially in France, where they are introducing new principles such as producing lightning-like flashes with a certain recognized regularity and waving stupendous searchlight beams in the sky, so that the approach to the coast may be seen when the land and lighthouse themselves are still below the horizon. If you have an opportunity to go into the lantern of a lighthouse, by all means take advantage of it, and if you can be there when a storm is raging, or when, on some misty night, the lantern is besieged by migrating birds, you will never forget the scene. On some especially dangerous, because hidden, Shoals, reefs, or bars, like those off Nantucket or the extreme point of Sandy Hook, it may be out of the question or bad policy to erect a lighthouse. Here its place is taken by anchoring a stout vessel, built to withstand the severest weather, and arranged to carry lanterns at its mastheads. These are called lightships, and they are manned by a crew of keepers who have a very monotonous and uncomfortable time of it. Yet in some cases, men have spent twenty years or more in the service. The most desolate and dangerous lightship station is that of Number 1, Nantucket. Upon this tossing island, out of sight of land, exposed to the fury of every tempest, and without a message from home during all the stormy months of winter, and sometimes even longer, ten men, braving the perils of wind and wave, and the worst terrors of isolation, trim the lamps whose lights warns thousands of vessels from certain destruction and hold themselves ready to save a life when the warning is vain. Seven years ago, Mr. Gustav Kobe and the artist William Taber spent several days in the lightship and gave a graphic account of the life there, which I wish I were able to quote in full. The anchorage is 24 miles out at sea, beyond Sankati Head. 
at the extremity of the shoals and rips which make all that space of water beyond the visible coast of Nantucket fatal to ships, hundreds of which are known to have been beaten to pieces on its treacherous bars. She is moored to a 6,500-pound mushroom anchor, by a chain two inches in thickness, yet she has been torn adrift twenty-three times, and has wandered widely, before returning or being overtaken. Number one, Nantucket, New South Shoals, to quote Mr. Cobbett, is a schooner of 275 tons, 103 feet long, with 24 feet breadth of beam, and staunchly built of white and live oak. She has two hulls, the space between them being filled through holes at short intervals and the inner side of the bulwarks with salt. She has four and aft lantern masts seventy-one feet high, including topmasts, and directly behind each of the lantern masts a mast for sails forty-two feet high. Forty-four feet up the lantern masts are day marks, reddish-brown hoop-iron gratings, which enable other vessels to sight the lightship more readily. The lanterns are octagons of glass in copper frames five feet in diameter, four feet nine inches high, with masts as centers. Each pane of glass is two feet long and two feet three inches high. There are eight lamps, burning a fixed white light, with parabolic reflectors in each lantern, which weighs, all told, about a ton. Some nine hundred gallons of oil are taken aboard for service during the year. The lanterns are lowered into houses built around the masts. The house around the main lantern mast stands directly on the deck, while the foremast lantern house is a heavily timbered frame three feet high. This is to prevent its being washed away by the waves the vessel ships when she plunges into the wintry seas. When the lamps have been lighted and the roofs of the lantern houses opened, they work on hinges and are raised by tackle. The lanterns are hoisted by means of winches to a point about twenty-five feet from the deck. Were they to be hoisted higher, they would make the ship top-heavy. A conspicuous object forward is the large fog bell swung ten feet above the deck. The prevalence of fog makes life on the South Shoal light ship especially dreary. During one season, fifty-five days out of seventy were thick and for twelve consecutive days and nights, the bell was kept tolling at two-minute intervals. The actual work to be done is small, the daily cleaning of the lamps requiring only two or three hours, and other chores being very light, and the men nearly die of loneliness and nothing to do. It is pathetic to read how intense and friendly an interest they take in a single red buoy anchored near them and they admit that fog is dreaded more because it hides this neighbor than for any other reason. Mr. Cobbe tells us that the emotional stress under which this crew labors can hardly be realized by anyone who has not been through a similar experience. The sailor on an ordinary ship has at least the inspiration of knowing that he is bound for somewhere, that in due time his vessel will be laid on her homeward course, that storm and fog are but incidents of the voyage. He is on a ship that leaps forward, full of life and energy, with every lash of the tempest. But no matter how the lightship may plunge and roll, no matter how strong the favoring gales may be, she is still anchored two miles southeast of the New South Shoal. Besides enduring the hardships incidental to their duties aboard the lightship, the South Shoal crew have done noble work in saving life. 
while the care of the lightship is considered of such importance to shipping that the crew are instructed not to expose themselves to dangers outside their special line of duty, and they would therefore have the fullest excuse for not risking their lives in rescuing others, they have never hesitated to do so. When, a few winters ago, the city of Newcastle went ashore on one of the shoals near the lightship, and strained herself so badly that although she floated off, she soon filled and went down stern foremost, all hands, twenty-seven in number, were saved by the South Shoal crew, and kept aboard of her over two weeks, until the story of the wreck was signaled to some passing vessel, and the lighthouse tender took them off. This is the largest number saved at one time by the South Shoal, but the lightship crew have faced great danger on several other occasions. This is perhaps the extreme picture of lightship life. But apart from the prolonged isolation and continuous roughness of the water, the experiences of the men off Sandy Hook and elsewhere are not greatly removed from it, and no philanthropy is more worthy of support than that which seeks to mitigate the loneliness of these exiles by providing them with reading matter. The Lighthouse Board provides a small circulating library for these ships, and contributions of books and files of illustrated periodicals will be greatly received and put to good use by the superintendent of the lighthouse service in Washington. But there are times, and they occur very frequently in northern waters, when fogs which no light can penetrate envelope sea and coast, and that is the most dangerous of all times to an approaching ship. The only means by which a warning can be given in such an emergency is by sound. In many places bells are rung, but often the place to be avoided is so situated that the roar of the surf would drown a bell's note, and then foghorns are blown. These foghorns are of a size so immense, and voices so stentorian, that it requires a steam engine to blow them, and they utter a booming, hollow blast, a dismal note as we hear it when we are safe on the land, but sweet to the anxious captain whose vessel is laboring through the gloom under close-reefed topsails and uncertain of her exact position. One kind of these horns is very complicated in its structure, and screeches in a rough, broken blare, a note far-reaching beyond any smooth, whistling sound that could be made. This shriek is so hideous, so ear-splitting, when heard near at hand, that no name bad enough to express it could be found so its inventors went to the other extreme, and called it a siren, after those most enchanting of sweet singers who tried to entice Ulysses out of his course. This name is opposite in a double sense, indeed, for the sirens of old lured sailors to wreck, while our siren hoarsely bids them keep off. Finally, buoys, which at first were simply tight casks, but now are usually made of boiler iron, are anchored on small reefs, to which are hung bells, rung constantly by the tossing of their support, and on other reefs, buoys are fixed having a hollow cap so arranged that when a big wave rushes over, it shuts in a body of air, under great and sudden pressure, which can only escape through a whistle in the top of the cap, uttering a long warning wail to tell its position. It is in such times as this that the pilot comes out strong. A pilot is a man who has made himself thoroughly acquainted with certain waters where navigation is dangerous, and who is licensed by some proper authority, after training and examination, to direct vessels in safety in entering harbors or passing through other intricate places. A ship captain may be an excellent navigator, 
but he is not expected to know every rock and sandbar crouching under the waves, and all the twistings and turnings of the entrance and channel of a foreign harbor, especially as these channels are subject to constant change. In this country, indeed, although coasting vessels may refuse a pilot, the law will not permit captains coming from or bound to a foreign port to do so. And if any accident happens when no pilot is aboard, the insurance money will not be paid, and the ship's officers may be punished. Pilots, then, are important men, and are able to charge very high prices for their services, generally rated according to the draft of the vessel. And their profession is so organized and guarded that not only must a man be thoroughly competent, but he must wait for a vacancy in the regular number before he will be admitted to their ranks. Their method of work is very exciting. A dozen or so together will form the crew of a trim, staunch schooner, provisioned for a fortnight or more, which cannot sail anything but a racing yacht, and is built to ride safely through the highest seas. A few steamers are coming into use, but the procedure is much the same. You will now and then see one of these beautiful little vessels sailing up the quiet harbor, threading its way through the black steamers and sputtering tugboats and great ships, as a shy and graceful girl walks among the guests at a lawn party. And you know from its air, as well as the big number on its white mainsail, that it is a pilot boat, even if it does not carry the regular pilot flag, which in the United States is simply the Union, or starry canton of the ensign. But these fine schooners and the brave men they carry are rarely in port. Their time is spent far in the offing of the harbor, cruising back and forth in wait for incoming ships, and the New York pilots often go two and three hundred miles out to sea, and in storms may be blown much farther away. Other pilot boats are waiting also, and the lookout at the reeling masthead must keep the very keenest watch upon the horizon. Suddenly he catches sight of a white speck which his practiced eye tells him is a ship's topsails, or of a blur upon the sky that advertises a steamer's approach. The schooner head is instantly turned toward it, and all the canvas is crowded on that she will bear, for away off at the right, a second pilot boat, well down, is also seen to be aiming at the same point and trying hard to win. The first pilots of New York Harbor were stationed at Sandy Hook and visited incoming vessels in whaleboats, and many a stately British frigate or colonial trader was forced to wait anxiously outside the bar, rolling and tossing in the seaway, or tacking hither and yon, hoping for a glimpse of that tiny speck where flashing oars told of the coming pilot. It is in this way, as the late Mr. J. O. Davidson, the artist, who knew all about such things, told us in St. Nicholas, January 1890 that many vessels are still met, off some of our smaller harbors, and at the mouth of the Mississippi River. There, the waters of the great river pouring into the Gulf of Mexico through the Port Eads jetties make a turbulent swell with foam-crested billows that roll the stoutest ship's gunwale under, even in calm weather. Yet the little whaleboats, swift and buoyant, dash out bravely in a race for the sail at, on the distant horizon. For there are two pilot stations at the jetties, and it is first come, first engaged. Sometimes, on the other hand, it is the ship that looks for the pilot, cruising about with the code letters PTE flying from her signal halyards in token of her need. She may even run past a pilot boat in the night and get into danger without being aware of it. To prevent this, says Mr. Davidson, the pilots burn what is known as a flare or torch, 
consisting of a bunch of cotton or lamp wick, dipped in turpentine, on the end of a short handle. It burns with a brilliant flame, lighting up the sea for a great distance and throwing the sails and number of the pilot boat into strong relief against the darkness. On a dark, clear night, the reddish glare which the signal projects on the clouds looks like distant heat lightning. Having sighted his vessel, the pilot whose turn it is to go on duty hurries below and packs the valise, which contains such things as he wishes to take home, for this is his method of going ashore. And when he has departed, if he is the last one of the pilot crew, the little vessel returns herself to port in charge of the sailing master, cook, and boy, to refit and take on a new set of men. The storm may be howling in the full force of the winter's fury, and the waves running mountain-high, but the pilot must get aboard by some means. It is rough weather indeed when his mates cannot launch their yawl and row him to where he can climb up the stranger's side with the aid of a friendly rope's end. Yet frequently this is out of the question. Then a whip is rigged beyond the end of a lee yardarm, carrying a rope rove through a snatchblock and having a noose at its end. The steamer slows her engines, or the ship heaves too, and the pilot schooner, under perfect control, runs up under the lee of the big ship, as near as she dares in the gale. Then, just at the right instant, a man on the ship's yard hurls the rope, it is caught by the schooner, the pilot slips one leg through the bowline noose, and a second afterward the schooner has swept on and he is being hoisted up to the yard arm, but generally not in time to save himself a good ducking in the coming of some big roller. Going on shipboard in this fashion is not favorable to an imposing effect. Nevertheless, the pilot is welcomed by both crew and passengers, who admire his courage and trust his skill, but smile at the high hat beloved of all pilots. Now, the pilot is master, stands ahead of the captain even, and his orders are absolute law. He inspects the vessel to form his opinion on how she will behave and then goes to the wheel or stands where best he can give orders to the steersman and to the men in the forechains heaving the sounding lead. He must never abandon his post, he must never lose control of the ship, or make a mistake as to its position in respect to the lee shore, or fail to be equal to every emergency. If it is too dark and foggy and stormy to see, he must feel, and if he cannot do this, he must have the faculty of going right by intuition. To fail is to lose his reputation, if not his life. This is what is expected of pilots, and this is what they actually do in a hundred cases, the full details of any one of which would make a long and thrilling tale of adventurous fighting for life. It is to help pilots and navigators of all sorts to avoid the perils that beset them that governments not only spend large sums in surveying coasts and harbors, publishing charts and descriptions, and maintaining lighthouses and lightships, but mark out bars and channels with floating guides, and their borders with shore beacons and ranges, to form so many finger posts for the right road. Were it not for these signposts, no ship could safely enter any commercial harbor in the world, and it will be valuable to quote somewhat from an article with capital illustrations, written for St. Nicholas, March 1896, by an officer of the United States Navy, Lieutenant John M. Ellicott, since it describes how the long, winding approaches to one of the greatest ports of the world are marked out by day and by night. I mean, the harbor of New York. Suppose, then, that we are on a big transatlantic steamer approaching the United States from Europe. 
Having secured his pilot, it is the captain's next aim to make a landfall. That is to say, he wishes to come in sight of some well-known object on shore, which, being marked down on his chart, will show him just where he is and how he must steer to find the entrance to the harbor. A special lighthouse is usually the object sought, and in approaching the New York harbor, it is customary for steamers from Europe to first find, or sight, Fire Island Lighthouse. This is on a sandy island near the coast of Log Island. When, therefore, the liner steams in sight of Fire Island Light, she hoists two signals, one of which tells her name, and the other the welfare of those on board. The operator then telegraphs to the ship's agents in New York that she has been sighted, and that all on board are well or otherwise. Other dispatches go to the newspapers, who have observing stations and telegraph arrangements here and at Sandy Hook. The ship's course is then laid to reach the most prominent object at the harbor's entrance, in this case, Sandy Hook Lightship. She is easily recognized. The course from this lightship to the harbor entrance is laid down on the chart west-northwest, one-quarter west. In steering this course, a group of three buoys is reached. One is a large nun, or cone-shaped buoy, painted black and white in vertical stripes. Another has a triangular framework built on it, and in the top of this framework is a bell which tolls mournfully as the buoy is rocked, while the third is surmounted by a big whistle. These mark the point where ocean ends and harbor begins, and can be found in fair weather or in fog by their color and shape or noise. They are the mid-channel buoys at the entrance to Gedney Channel, the deep-water entrance to New York Harbor. Here it may be noted that the mid-channel buoys in all harbors in the United States are painted black and white in vertical stripes, and being in mid-channel should be passed close to by all deep-draft vessels. At this point, the pilot takes charge. Ahead, the water seems now to be dotted in the most indiscriminate manner with buoys and beacons, and on the shores around the harbor, far and near, there seems to be almost a dozen lighthouses. If, however, you watch the buoys as the pilot steers the ship between them, you will soon see that all those passed on the right-hand side are red, and all on the left are black. Where more than one channel runs through the same harbor, the different channels are marked by buoys of different shapes. Principal channels are marked by nun buoys, secondary channels by can buoys, and minor channels by spar buoys. Gedney Channel is a short, dredged lane leading over the outer bar, or barrier of sand, which lies between harbor and ocean. Its buoys are lighted at night by electricity, through submarine cables, the red ones with red lights, the black ones with white lights. Moreover, a little lighthouse off to the left, known as Sandy Hook Beacon, has in its lamp a red sector which throws a red beam just covering Gedney Channel. Thus, this channel can be passed through in safety by night as well as by day. If it is night, the pilot knows when he is through it by the change of color in Sandy Hook Beacon from red to white. Then he looks away past that light to his left for two fixed white lights on the New Jersey shore and hillside, known as Point Comfort Beacon and Wakak Beacon, for he knows by keeping them in range, that is to say, in line with one another and himself and by steering toward them, he is in the main ship channel. By day, the main ship channel buoys would guide him, as in Gedney Channel, but at night these buoys are not lighted. 
Only a short distance is now traversed when the ship comes to a point where two unseen channels meet. This is indicated by a buoy having a tall spindle, or perch, surmounted by a latticed square. From here, if she continues on her course, she will remain in the main ship channel, which, although deeper, is a more circuitous route into port. So, if she does not draw too much water, she is turned somewhat to the right, and leaving the buoy with the perch and square on her right because it is red, she is steered between the buoys which mark Swash Channel. If it were night, this channel would be revealed by two ranged lights on the Staten Island shore and hillside, known as Elm Tree Beacon and New Dorp Beacon, both being steady-burning white lights. But we are entering by daylight, and when halfway through Swash Channel, we notice a buoy painted red and black in horizontal stripes. To this is given a wide berth by the pilot. It is an obstruction buoy, marking a shoal spot or a wreck. Channel buoys are all numbered in sequence from the sea inward, the red ones with even, and the black ones with odd numbers, and the larger ones are anchored with mushrooms, while the smallers have sinkers of iron or stone. They are made of iron plates in watertight compartments, so that if punctured by an overrunning ship or some other accident, they will not be likely to sink. In harbors where ice forms in winter, large summer buoys are replaced in winter by a smaller sort less liable to be torn adrift. Buoys do go adrift, however, now and then, and sometimes take a voyage across the ocean or far down the coast before they can be found by the tenders of the lighthouse service, which is constantly looking after these and other marks. Lieutenant Ellicott tells us that all changes in the position of buoys or lightships, or the placing of new buoys to mark a change of channel or an obstruction, are published promptly in pamphlets called Notices to Mariners, which are distributed as quickly as possible through well-organized means of communication. A few years ago, one of the largest of our handsome new cruisers was approaching New York Harbor from the West Indies in a light fog. A Sandy Hook lightship had been found the usual course laid for Gedney Channel, and the ship was steaming onward at full speed, her captain, having been inspector of that very lighthouse district but a short time before, feeling that he knew his way into that port better than the most experienced pilot. Presently, however, he was startled by the alarming cry of breakers ahead. A large hotel also loomed up, and as the ship was backed full speed astern, all hands realized that they had barely escaped running high and dry on Rockaway Beach. When the vessel got into port, it was learned that Sandy Hook Lightship had been moved considerably from its old position, and that the notice of this change had failed to reach the captain of the cruiser before he sailed from the West Indies. Shipwrecks still occur, however, in spite of lighthouses and sirens and buoys and coast surveys. Therefore, we add to our precautions arrangements to help those cast away. Societies to save wrecked persons have existed, it is said, for many centuries in China, but in Europe they are hardly a hundred years old. The early humane societies, like that of Great Britain, placed lifeboats and rescuing gear in certain shore towns and organized crews who promised to go out to the aid of any lost ship and to take good care of the persons rescued. In America, however, our coasts are so extensive, and so much of the dangerous part of them is far away from villages or even a farmhouse, that the government has been obliged to do whatever was necessary. Thus came about the life-saving service, 
which now has its stations close together along our whole seacoast, and upon the Great Lakes, covering more than 10,000 miles in all. Each of these stations is a snug house on the beach, tenanted by a keeper and six men, all of whom are chosen for their skill in swimming and in handling a boat in the surf, something every man who follows the sea cannot do successfully. Beaching a boat through surf is an art. During all the season, from October till May, two men from each station are incessantly patrolling the beach at night, each walking until he meets the patrolman from the next station. No matter how foul the weather, these watchmen are out until daylight looking for disasters. The moment they discover a vessel ashore, or likely to become disabled, they summon their companions and hasten to launch their boat. These boats are of two kinds. On the lakes and on the steep Pacific coast is used the very heavy English lifeboat, fitted with masts and sails if necessary, which a steam tug is required to tow to the scene of the wreck, unless it is close inshore. But upon our flat, sandy Atlantic beaches, only a lighter kind of surf boat, made of cedar, can be handled. This is built with air cases at each end, and under the thwarts, so that it cannot sink. The station men drag it on its low wagon to the scene of its use, unless horses are to be had. And when it is launched, they sit at the six oars, each with his cork belt buckled around him, and his eye fixed on the steersman, who stands in the stern, ready to obey his slightest motion of command, for rowing through the angry waves that dash themselves on a storm-beaten beach is a matter requiring extraordinary skill and strength. Then, when the vessel is reached, comes another struggle to avoid being struck and crushed by the plunging ship, or the broken spars and rigging pounding about the hull. But skill and caution generally enable the crew to rescue the unfortunate castaways one by one, though frequently several trips must be made, in each one of which every surfman risks his life, and in many a sad case loses it. Yet there is no lack of men for the service. It is a common occurrence, however, that the sea will run so high that no boat could possibly be launched. Then the only possibility of rescue for the crew is by means of a line which shall bridge the space between the ship and the land before the hull falls to pieces. We read in old tales of wrecks of how some brave seaman would tie a light line around his waist and dare the dreadful waves and the more dreadful undertow to save his comrades. If he got safely upon the beach, he drew a hawser on shore and made it fast. Now, we do not ask this, but with a small cannon made for the purpose, a strong cord attached to the cannonball is fired over the ship, even though it be seven hundred yards distant. Seizing this line as it falls across their vessel, the imperiled sailors haul to themselves a larger line, called a whip, which they fasten in a tackle block in such a way that a still heavier cable can be stretched between the wreck and the land and made fast. Then by means of a small sideline and pulleys, a double canvas bag, shaped like a pair of knee breeches, is sent back and forth between the ship and the shore, bringing a man each time until all are saved. Should there be many persons on board, though, and great haste necessary, instead of the breeches buoy, a small covered metallic boat, called the life car, is sent out, into which several persons may get at once. These very means are so skillfully employed that now hardly one in two hundred is lost of those whose lives are endangered on the American coasts. End of section 15